fourth chapter of Joshua, verses 1 through 7, then I'm going to skip to verse 21 and read through the end of the chapter. Now it came about when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off from before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. And he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers, in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which He dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. If you've ever tried to learn a sport, any sport, you know how important is the follow-through. Perhaps the most important part, or one of the most important parts of learning the mechanics of any sport is to learn the follow-through. It's true of golf, it's true of tennis, true of basketball, a friend of mine told me that when they built the uh, golf course out in Seminole, Texas, a, an oasis among sand dunes and grass birds, one of the most beautiful nine-hole courses in America, as a matter of fact, that Arnold Palmer and Gary Player were doing a lot of these um, benefits, uh, uh, demonstrations. They'd go around the country, so they got them to come out to Seminole, raise a little money. And he said that uh, during a time of a question and answer, somebody asked Gary Player, what would you, if you had, you, you know, were teaching some guys trying to learn how to play golf, what would be the, you had one thing you could tell him that was the most important about learning how to play, what would it be? He said, well, I'd, I'd tell him to learn how to follow through. And he said he took three golf tees and put the golf ball on a tee and stuck it down the ground. Now this golf lesson's free. You never know what you're going to get when you come here. This, this lesson's free. So he put the golf ball down and he, he put these other three tees spaced about two inches apart in front of the golf ball. He said, now you guys need to, to learn how to bring that golf head through that golf ball all the way through till it knocks over the other three tees. He said the, most, the hardest thing to do in teaching people how to play golf is to get them to follow through. It's the most important part, perhaps. So it's five seconds left to play, and 
and you're one point behind, you got two free throws. And the guy goes to the line, he's telling himself, now follow through, now follow through. He goes through the motions. What he's doing is he's practicing to follow through. It's the hardest thing to get people to do is to follow through. That's true in any sport. It's true in every enterprise of life. So that the road of human history is strewn with the enterprises of, that started out well that just didn't make it through, just failed. It's true of marriage. One half of the people that stand at an altar to be married will not follow through. It's true of the Christian faith. And even though it is, the, it, it is true of the Christian faith, Jesus said no man builds a tower unless he first sits down and see if he can follow through on it. And a man called out to him one day, he said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, now remember that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Before you make a statement like that, he's saying, you need to be sure you can follow through. One of the most significant things about the letters of the Apostle Paul is this, that the emphasis in his letters are not on the crisis event, not on the beginning event, but on the follow-through. The emphasis of Paul's letters are on the follow-through. And so there are 24 chapters in the book of Joshua. Four of them deal with the crisis event. We've, been, we've studied five weeks on the crisis event, on getting across the Jordan. Four chapters deal with the beginning event. Twenty of the chapters deal with, with the follow-through. And so when they crossed the Jordan, God told them to do a strange thing before they encountered the enemy in battle, before they did anything else, they were to go back into the middle of their experience, into the middle of the beginning, the crisis experience, and get 12 stones. And these stones were to be a memorial to the work and the grace of God, and they were to be that which enabled them to follow through. Now you say there are going to be people asking when they see these stones, what do these stones mean? That's what I'm going to ask this morning. What do they mean? Now if the New Testament gives us the principles of the Christian life and the Old Testament gives us a pictures of the Christian life, what do these stones picture? What do they illustrate? What do they mean? Four, three things. First, these stones mean that there ought to be some lasting visible evidence of what God has done in your life. These stones ought to be, mean that there ought to be some lasting visible evidence of your experience. Something that pricks the curiosity of people and causes them to say, what makes that guy tick? What, what, what is there about that person that makes them different? Why, he doesn't cave in when pressure comes. And she doesn't conform just to be popular. And he doesn't wear his feelings on his sleeves. He forgives when he's sinned against. And that person has a sense of, has a radiancy about them and a joy about them and, a, and, a, and, a, and an integrity about them. What makes that person tick? What have they got and where did they get it? See, something that causes that. What he's saying is this, that there ought to be something in your life in the present that speaks of what God has done in the past. A present result of a past experience. I'm afraid that's where we're drastically lacking. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not against wearing fish pins and, 
and smile, God loves you, bumper stickers and raising your hand in worship. I'm not against that stuff. But if that is all there is, if that's what it takes for people to recognize our experience, then there's something wrong with our experience. I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6 not long ago and I, I found this unusual statement. Paul said that you have received the grace of God in vain. Now how do you do that? How do you receive the grace of God in vain? Well, if you read the rest of that chapter, he'll tell you what he means. He's saying if there is not something obvious and tangible and visible in your life concerning the grace of God, then you've received that grace in vain. And what God is saying about these stones is this, that, that if there's not something lasting and visible and tangible and obvious in your life concerning the grace of God, then His grace in your life, His experience in your life is in vain. You see, God doesn't give us an experience with Him just so that we'll have an experience. How many of you think God saved you just so you wouldn't go to hell? That's not why God saved you. You know why God gives us an experience? It's not so we'll have the experience. He gives us that experience. He saves us so that He'll have some visible, tangible evidence of His grace in this life. And it's what Paul means in Ephesians when he says, so that in the ages to come we might show the excellency of His grace. What do these stones mean? They mean there ought to be some visible, lasting evidence of God's, your experience with God in the past. Secondly, what these stones mean is, is this, that the experience you've had with God ought to be the source of all of your life and actions. I need to say that again. Your experience ought to be the source of your life and action. Now watch this. God told Joshua, he said, you go out there in the midst of that, in the heart of that experience you've had out there, getting across the, the, the Jordan. That, that, that's pretty spectacular, you know, walking across the Jordan on dry land. He said, I want you to go out there and get that, some stones out of the midst of that experience and place them over here where you sleep tonight, where you camp. And they did. And if you trace this chapter on through, later on they took these stones and they put them in Gilgal. They erected them there and that's where they stayed permanently. Now the significance of that is that Gilgal became their headquarters, their, basis of op their base of operation, their source of life and activity. And wherever they went, they always came back to Gilgal. They'd go out and you know, fight a battle, they'd always return to Gilgal everywhere Whatever they did or wherever they went, they always came back to Gilgal because that was the basis, the base of their operation, the source of their life. That was, that was their headquarters. Now what God is saying is this, that your experience with God ought to be the source of everything you do. Now we get this thing in reverse. We come to church on Sunday morning so we can have an experience with God and we go back and wait till next Sunday so we can come back and have another one. What we do when we come to worship is we come to have an experience with God so we can leave and that experience be the source of what we do during the week, you see. Two or three weeks ago, I, I trudged off down here to the church to an associational meeting. Now, I'm not always fired up about them and... Uh, you know, these guys are going to talk about stewardship, so I wasn't that 
fired up. But I, 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 this guy told this most remarkable story. He said his son uh, got a job and, and moved out to Las Vegas, Nevada. He said, of all the places for my grandkids to be raised, Las Vegas, Nevada would have been my last choice. And he said they got involved in a little church out there, and the church was growing, and they decided they needed a new building. They didn't have any money, to, no way to buy any property. And he said they heard about some... So they're going to have a little time so they could, you know, get some money together. So they, they started getting some money together, and it came up time for them to bid on it again. And they went down there, and they, they, they prayed that they, nobody would outbid them. Nobody outbid them. So they got it. They didn't really have enough money to pay for it, but they had some property, and, you know, that they were meeting in just a little church building. And the Koreans were meeting with them, an Oriental group church was meeting with them, and so they decided they'd just sell what they had to these Koreans. And, the, and this guy's father said, well, what you need to do is get as much out of them as it takes to buy the property. They, weren't going, they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to give this, we've we, we got a ministry to these people. So they just more or less gave them that property. And they started raising money to, to buy theirs. And they bought it, they got it. And it wasn't just a little while till they... They, they, they changed the plans of a, of a big thoroughfare and they, and they, and, and they decided, the, the highway department, to build a, a, a thoroughfare, a, a loop, right past their property. And that became the, the most choice property in Las Vegas, Nevada. Everybody wanted it. They had it. Well, Donald Trump, this billionaire in New York City, sent out his men down there to that church to buy that. Because he wanted to put some casinos out there. And he offered them $11 million for that property. And they turned it down. They said, no, God gave us that property. We can't, we can't sell it. God gave it to us. And so Trump and, and the city fathers began to put pressure on that church. They, they, they took them to court. But they had this thing nailed down just right. They had, it was their property. Nobody could get away from them. And they started bearing down on them to get away from it. Donald Trump sent his guys out the second time. This is what he offered them. He said, I'll, I'll buy you any piece of property in Las Vegas that you choose other than this one. You just pick it out. And I'll build you a church on it. And they had their long-range plans and the, media, the, the intermediate plans, not the beginning plans, but the intermediate included an auditorium that seats 500 people. He, he said, we'll, we'll build you that building and give it to you debt-free anywhere you want it and give you $11 million on top of that. And this guy's daddy said, well, you sold it, didn't you? I mean, not. <laughs> didn't you sell it? He said, no, he said, we didn't sell it. He said, God gave that to us. We couldn't sell that. He said, oh, my son lost his mind. You know, we couldn't do that. And he said, we became known, and we're now known in Las Vegas as the church that wouldn't sell out. And he said, the mayor of Las, Las Vegas has been to our church and he has said, we don't know what you folks have got going on out here, but something is different out here with you. And he said there hadn't been a service in that church since they made that decision, not even a Bible study on Friday nights that somebody didn't get saved. Now let me tell you something. The experience that a person has with God 
that crisis experience or any experience, if you, you, know, if you encountered God here in this, in this place this morning in a, an unusual way, in a, marvel, in, a, in a divine way, that experience ought to be the basis of your, the operation of your life. It, it ought to be the, the motivation of everything you do, the source of all life and activity. It means two things. It becomes a place of remembrance in times of temporary defeat. When it seems like that, that God is not answering prayer, when it seems like God's not doing anything, you just come back to these stones, you see. And, and, it, and it reminds you, look, I remember when God did this. And it's a place of remembrance. It's what the psalmist meant when he said, My soul is cast down within me. Thus I said, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and the Heron. In other words, what he's saying is this, when I get down and I don't see God at work in my life, I just go back to the stones. Not only is it a place of, uh, of remembrance in times of temporary defeat, it's a, it's a place of, of uh, re-establishment or readjustment when you're disconnected. Let me, let me say this quickly. It's easy for us to get off track to get disconnected. I mean, even guys like Joshua get disconnected from God, get off track. And these stones were to, to be a place where they came back and readjusted. Let me ask you this. How many of you love the Lord today as much as you did when you started out? How many of you have the same enthusiasm, the same joy today that you had when you first were saved? How many of you still have that same joy and the same excitement, the same enthusiasm? I remember when I first pastored my first church, I was 19 years of age. There's 12 people there. I worked all week, got all of Billy Graham's sermons, improved them, and, and, and put them all in one. True story. Come all in one. And, and I got up and I ranted and I sweated and spit and to 12 people. And after it's over, true story, the head deacon got up and we, we, we moved our membership. My wife came forward and we joined the church. The deacon came up and he said, we get a lot of these boys, he called, us, called me, boys. We get a lot of these boys from Hardin-Simmons out here to preach. He said, they're always on fire, he said. He said, he'll cool off. He just kind of looked, you know, at the 12 and just kind of assured them. He said, oh, he'll cool off. And, and the sad part about it was that he was right. That's the bad part. You open up the first book, first three words of this book, and it says, in beginning God, and you're going to get excited because this is a book about God. But you come to the last three words of the Old Testament and the last three words are with a curse. And there have been hundreds of years between the first three words and the last three words. Hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of things that God has done in these hundreds of years. And you'd think there'd be a lot further along than that. I tell you, some of us have been saved longer than we even like to admit. We're no better than when we started. Some of us are worse. And it's been 2,000 years since we've had the New Testament church and the church is farther off from the New Testament church than it was when it started. We're still trying to be the New Testament church. 
And some of us need to go back to those stones, you know, that we erected when we first got saved and those vows we made and those promises we made. I'm not, I don't think that you need a preacher get up on Sunday morning and try to get you to make some new promises. I think what you need is a preacher to get up and remind you and remind himself that we've made promises, many promises that we've never kept. We said, whenever anybody asks you about these stones, let it be a play. You, you just let it be a time, a thing to remind you that you need to readjust the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience. Those kinds of things are the are the are the standards that a person need to, needs to adjust his life or readjust his life to. You see, what are these stones? These stones are to help us to see that that our experience with God is to be the source of all we do. Finally, one last thought. These stones are to remind us that we have a responsibility to pass on to others who come behind us, who follow us, of His grace and power and mercy. Now watch this. He said, now your kid's going to ask you one day, Daddy, what do these stones mean? And it's going to be like these bumper stickers you see on the back of the car, ask me about my grandbaby. You don't let me do that. I've seen the bumper stickers, though. It says, ask me about my grandbaby. I know there's got to be a grandmother somewhere that's dying to tell about their grandbaby. I don't, uh, I don't know who it is, but I know there's a grandmother that has this bumper sticker that says that, and, and they're just dying to take up about two hours of your time show you a bunch of pictures. And so he said, when you see these stones... It should be that, that, when, that it's going to prick the curiosity and somebody's going to say to you, what do these stones mean? And that's going to give you an opportunity to bear witness of what God is. See, we have a duty to make this pass to success. And there are people who are coming on behind us that we need to be telling about this, you see. How many of you are doing that? Um, I was reading in my quiet time this week from the 119th Psalm, and the psalmist said, O Lord, your faithfulness extends to all generations. And I asked the Lord what he meant by that, and the Lord told my heart this. God said, what that means is that, that I'll be just as good to your kids as I've been to you. Oh, I love it. I want my kids to get to know the Lord, don't you? I want him, I want them, I want my neighbors, I want my friends to know that he's so good to me. I want them to know him too. He'll be just as good to them as he is to me. Now, are you, I mean, how many people have you led to the Lord in the last week, last year? Are you passing this on down to somebody? We ought not to be satisfied to live and rejoice in our own salvation, hope and fellowship with no thought of passing it on. There's a story going on out in West Texas. I don't know how true it is. That's a true story whether it happened or not. That, that they discovered this huge oil and gas field on, the church, on, a, on, a, on this church property. And they were instantly rich. And they got together, did the little church to figure out what they were going to do with all this money. And they decided that they, you know, after they built, you know, put new carpet down, got new furniture, put new kitchen in, all that nursery, just remodeled everything. And and after that, they 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 got them a pastor and all that stuff. They just kept having this money coming in. What are they going to do with this? 
they gave some to missions, you know, a couple of dollars. And, and they decided, they, they met and they decided that, that uh, they'd just divide up the money among the members equally. That sounds like a logical thing to do, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, just, you know, everybody gets an equal share and they just all got in on it. And so after they made that decision, the moderator said, is there any other uh, thing needs to be brought to the church? This guy got up. Now, I don't know whether this happened or not, but this guy got up and he said, I'd like to make a motion. We don't let anybody else join this church. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, that guy's on his toes. We're not going to let anybody get in on this. Now, you say, no, that didn't happen. That would never happen here. If it happened there, it never would happen here. But the results are still the same. We come in here and we shut the doors here and we have a good time and we're not going to let anybody else in on this. I've seen signs and windows that said, not everything on display for sale. I tell you, not everything on display in this church is for sale. We like to display it. We put it in the standard, the messenger, and we put it in the paper. We like to advertise it, but we're not selling any of it, some of it. How many people have you gone to this last week next door say, I'd like to give you something, what I got down there? How many times have you gone across the street to your neighbor and said, hey, I've got something you need. I want to pass on something that's so important to me. How many of you have done that? None of us have done that. Donald Gray Barnhouse tells about the postman that got fined because he had, a, had 1,200 Christmas cards. He knew he didn't have time to get out, but, you know, to get to his Christmas party, so he just hid them. And they found them, find him. And some of us have gotten the good news and the glad tidings, but we know we don't have time to get rid of it, get it out, distribute it, because we got all this other stuff we're doing. And so we just bury it. Now, is that true or not? And what do these stones mean? Well, they mean that you and I have a duty. Whose duty isn't if is it if it isn't ours? We have a duty to those who come along behind us to tell them what God is and what He's doing in the world. That's our duty. Listen, I'm through. John Dunn has a little work, a little poem called For Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, I know there's some pantheism in that uh, work, but I, I love it. He said, No man is an island unto himself entire. You know, back then, John Dunn was a minister. Back then, they, when somebody died, they rang this bell in the, in the church steeple. I mean, if it was at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, they still rang the bell so that everybody in town knew somebody died. This is what he said. When at midnight I hear a bell toll from this steeple, must not I say to myself, what have I done at any time for the instruction or the rectifying of that man's conscience who lieth there now ready to deliver up his own account to Almighty God? If he be not able to give a good account, he and I are in danger because I've not enabled him. Though he be himself able, that delivers me not if I have been no instrument for the doing of it. Doesn't matter if he is old enough to decide for himself and make his own decisions, be accountable for his own choices. If I haven't done anything to, as an instrument to help him, I'm going to be accountable 
to God for that. You ever thought of that? Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. What do these stones mean? That's what scares us. We know they mean there's something ought to be, ought to be something visible and tangible in our life that gives evidence of an experience. We know that's what scares us. We know that these stones, the experience, ought to be the basis of everything we do in life. We know that. We know. We know. We don't have to be reminded. We know that we have a responsibility to tell our children and our children's children what God has done. We know that. The problem is we're not doing it. Let's pray together. For this moment of invitation, we pray your power and spirit for the illumination of hearts, for the revelation of will, for the encouragement and strength, I pray in Jesus' name. Now would you look here please? My invitation this morning is for you to come and receive Christ as your Savior. Get up out of this, out of your place and come to say, I want to claim for myself personal salvation. I want to place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And I confess Him as my Savior and Lord. I want to be saved. Get up out of this, out of your place and come this morning from out of the balcony or out of this auditorium below to say, I feel led to place my life in this church. I want to serve God in the local church that meets here at this place with these people that I've met. Get up out of your place this morning and come from out of the balcony and out of the choir and out of this lower auditorium to say, I want to commit myself more totally to God. I don't like the way I live. And I want to publicly come to declare that I'm going to begin a new beginning, a new walk, and a new relationship that's more meaningful. Would you do it? On the first word of the first stanza, that's the one you need to respond, where you need to respond. While we stand, you come.